Welcome, podcast listeners. We have a fantastic episode for you today. Last year, when we published The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2, we offered authors the opportunity to record an audio version of their chapter to be released as a segment of the podcast. And listeners loved it. This year, we're bringing you the entire volume of The Best Investment Writing, Volume 3, in podcast format. You'll hear from some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers all over the world. Enough from me. Let's get to our guests and let them take over this special episode. Hi, this is Larry Swedro. I'm the Chief Research Officer and a board member with Buckingham Strategic Wealth. Buckingham delivers comprehensive wealth management solutions to individuals, families, and organizations throughout the United States. Over the past 20 years, this firm has grown into a thriving organization of advisors devoted to helping people achieve their most important goals through sound, evidence-based financial advice. Today, Buckingham works with a wide variety of clients whose needs range from core investment advice to multi-generational wealth planning to retirement plan management. At the end of the day, though, everything is about building relationships and understanding our clients' values. To learn more about us, visit BuckinghamAdvisor.com. I'm going to read a piece entitled Investment Strategy in an Uncertain World. In 1921, University of Chicago professor Frank Nye wrote the classic book Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit. An article from the Library of Economics and Liberty described Knight's definition of risk and uncertainty as follows. Risk is present when future events occur with measurable probability. Uncertainty, on the other hand, is present when the likelihood of future events is indefinite or incalculable. In some cases, we know the odds of event occurring with certainty. The classic example is that we can calculate the odds of rolling any particular number on a pair of dice. And because of demographic data, we can make a good estimate of the odds that a 65-year-old couple will have at least one spouse live beyond 90. We cannot know the odds precisely because there may be future advances in medical science extending life expectancy. Conversely, new diseases may arise, shortening it. This illustrates the concept of risk. Now compare that with examples of uncertainty, the odds of an oil embargo such as we experienced in 1973, the odds of an event such as the attacks of September 11th, 2001, or the odds of Iran's blocking the Straits of Hormuz, or even the odds of a trade war with China. For investors, it's critical to understand the important difference between these two concepts, risk and uncertainty. While investors much prefer to deal with risk where they know the odds or at least can estimate them with a great degree of certainty, investing is generally much closer to uncertainty. And since there are no investment crystal balls, how should investors go about designing portfolios? What are the principles that should be followed? One strategy is to hire active managers, those legendary gurus who can protect you from bad things happening to a portfolio. Unfortunately, the Eugene Fama and Ken French study, Luck versus Skill in the Cross-Section of Mutual Fund Returns, 
has found that fewer active managers, only about 2%, are able to outperform their three-factor model, meaning market beta, size, and value benchmark, than would be expected by chance. And that is even before considering taxes. Adding to the bad news, there's no evidence that active managers add value in bear markets just when they are needed most. That was the finding of a Vanguard study, which appeared in the spring-summer 2009 issue of Vanguard Investment Perspectives. Defining a bear market as a loss of at least 10%, the study covered the period 1970 through 2008, which included seven bear markets in the U.S. and six in Europe. Once adjusting for risk or the exposure to different asset classes, Vanguard reached the conclusion that whether an active manager is operating in a bear market, a bull market that precedes it or follows it, or across longer-term market cycles, the combination of cost, security selection, and market timing proves a difficult hurdle to overcome. They also confirmed that past success in overcoming this hurdle does not ensure future success. Vanguard was able to reach this conclusion despite the fact that the data was biased in favor of active managers because it contained survivorship bias. It is likely evidence such as this that led William Bernstein, author of The Investor's Manifesto, to declare the reason that guru is such a popular word is because charlatan is so hard to spell. Either that, or as Peter Drucker stated, charlatan is too long to use in a headline. Even highly regarded mutual fund manager Ralph Wanger in his book, A Zebra and Lion Country, stated, for professional investors like myself, a sense of humor is essential. We are very aware that we are competing not only against the market averages, but also against one another. And it's an intense rivalry. Each of us is claiming that the stocks in my fund today will perform better than what you own in your fund. And this implies that we can predict the future, which is the occupation of charlatans. If you believe you or anyone else has a system that can predict the future of the market, the joke is on you. The problem with active management is that the industry is focused on managing returns, a losing proposition. So what's the alternative? Perhaps it's the strategy most likely to allow you to achieve your life and financial goals. The prudent strategy instead is to focus not on managing returns, but on managing risk. How should an investor go about doing that? The following are the foundational premises of what I believe to be the most prudent approach to managing risk. The first premise is to assume that the markets, while not perfectly efficient, are highly efficient. Thus, after implementation costs, active management is a loser's game where the odds of winning are so poor that it's not prudent to try. Just like the loser's game of craps in Las Vegas, the surest way to win is to not play. In investing, not playing means using passive strategies that do not seek alpha, only beta, or exposure to a factor or asset class, a unique source of risk and return. 
If you believe that markets are highly efficient, you should also believe that all diversified sources of systematic risk, meaning unique sources of risk and return, such as major asset classes and factor exposures like size, value, momentum, quality, profitability, and carry, should have about the same expected risk-adjusted return. That leads to the conclusion that we should invest in strategies that broadly diversify across an asset class or factor instead of trying to determine which individual investments are likely to outperform. In other words, investors should be beta seekers, not alpha seekers, with beta being defined as a unique source of risk. That brings us to the third foundational premise. Because diversification across unique sources of risk is a free lunch, providing higher expected risk-adjusted returns, the prudent strategy is to identify as many unique sources of risk and return as you can that meet the criteria you establish for investment. In your complete guide to factor-based investing, my co-author Andrew Birkin and I recommend that any investment you consider should demonstrate that it has a unique source of risk and return that has delivered a premium that has also been persistent, meaning it holds across long periods of time and across different economic regimes. It's pervasive, meaning it holds across countries, regions, sectors, and even asset classes. It's also robust, meaning it holds for various definitions. For example, there is a value premium, whether it is measured by price to book, earnings, cash flow, or sales. And it's investable, meaning it holds up after considering all implementation costs. And finally, the premium must have an intuitive, logical, risk-based, or behavioral-based explanation that provides the rationale for believing it should continue to exist. Investment factors that meet all of the above criteria are market beta, size, value, momentum, both cross-sectional and time series, profitability and quality, and carry. Other investments that meet all the criteria are the variance risk premium, which is the writing of puts and calls, reinsurance, and what is called marketplace or alternative lending, which we can define as fully amortizing small business and student prime, not junk loans. Thus, each of these should be considered for inclusion in a portfolio. Note that exposures to factors can be obtained in either long-only or long-short portfolios. In the cases of reinsurance, marketplace lending and the variance risk premium, exposures can be attained through investing in what are called interval funds, funds that provide limited liquidity on a quarterly basis. Summarizing, in a world of uncertainty where there are no crystal balls allowing you to foresee the future, if you believe markets are efficient, you should believe that sources of systemic risk and return have similar risk-adjusted returns, and that should lead you to conclude that you should diversify across as many unique sources of risk and return as you can identify that meet all the established criteria. The problem is the traditional 60-40 bond portfolio has almost all of its risk in one risk basket, 
meaning market beta, and thus it is not well diversified across unique sources of risk. Let's see why this is the case. Instead of thinking of exposures as percentages, we need to think about them in terms of how much risk is involved. So while volatility is not the only type of risk, there's skewness and kurtosis and liquidity and other types of risk, it's a good one. Thus, we will use it to calculate the amount of risk points in each investment in a portfolio. A typical well-diversified equity portfolio has a volatility of about 20%. Since equities have an allocation of 60% in the typical 60-40 portfolio, they bring about 1,200 risk points to the portfolio, 20% volatility times the 60% allocation. If we assume the 40% in bonds is in a five-year treasury, it will have a volatility of about 5 and that brings the bonds risk points to 200 or 40 times 5. Now, the total number of risk points in the portfolio is 1,400, of which 1,200 or 86% are in equities. And that raises the question, if you can identify other unique sources of risk, each of which has about the same expected return as the stocks and safe bonds we are holding, why would we not want to include them, increasing the portfolio's diversification and creating a more efficient portfolio? Why do we want to own a portfolio in which one risk factor, market beta, comprises almost 90% of the risk? That brings us to the concept of a risk parity portfolio. The risk parity approach to portfolio construction seeks to allocate capital in a portfolio based on a risk-weighted basis. This approach attempts to avoid the risks and skewness of traditional portfolio diversification by considering the volatility of the assets included in the portfolio. In addition, the risk parity portfolio is the most efficient portfolio when allocating to systematic assets and factors that have similar expected returns per unit of risk. One way to approach risk parity is to increase exposure to equities with higher than market returns. For example, small value stocks have historically outperformed the market. Thus, owning more small value stocks than the market portfolio allows us to lower the market's exposure to market beta without lowering its expected return because the stocks we do own have a higher than market return. That lowers our exposure to market beta while increasing exposure to the size and value factors. In addition, the lower exposure to market beta allows us to hold more safe bonds, increasing our exposure to the term premium. These changes move us toward more of a risk parity portfolio. Consider the following example of two hypothetical portfolios, A and B, that illustrate how to move a portfolio towards risk parity. The period is April 93 through December 2018. That start date was chosen because it was the inception of the first passively managed small value fund, the DFA US Small Cap Value Fund. 
I chose that fund, again, because it has the longest record of any passively managed U.S. small value fund. For example, the inception date of the Vanguard Small Value Index Fund is five years later in April of 98. So Portfolio A will look like our typical conventional 60-40 portfolio. Owning a market-like portfolio will use the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund to represent that allocation. And then we'll use Vanguard's Intermediate Treasury Fund for the 40% allocation to the bond fund. Portfolio B, we're only going to hold 40% equities. We can use that lower percentage because the equities, as I mentioned earlier, have higher expected returns because we're owning the DFA US Small Value Fund. So that's 40%, and now we'll hold 60% of the same bond fund, the Vanguard Intermediate Treasury Fund. So when we look at the returns and risk of the portfolio, here's what we find. Portfolio A, which owns the two Vanguard funds, has almost the same return and volatility as Portfolio B, which is only 40% equity and using the DFA small value funds. Portfolio A returns 7.8%, Portfolio B 8.1%. Basically, that's the same number from a statistical significance standpoint. And similarly, they had very close volatilities. Portfolio A was 9 and Portfolio B was 7.7. But in both cases, the portfolio with less equity but owning small value stocks had higher returns and a little bit less volatility. So clearly was a more efficient portfolio delivering a higher Sharpe ratio. In addition, the worst case return, which is what many investors are concerned about, covering the downside risk, which were otherwise known in addition as sequence risk for those in retirement. Portfolio A's worst year was down almost 20%. Portfolio B's worst year was less than half of that at down only nine. On the other hand, while Portfolio A did have a better best case year at up almost 30%, Portfolio B captured almost all of the upside at up 24%. How did this outcome come about? The reason is Portfolio B benefited from the allocation across more unique sources of risk. Portfolio A has only two exposures to risk. The first is market beta. A Vanguard total market fund, by definition, will have exposure to market beta of one, and you own 60% of the portfolio in equities. So the loading on the beta factor is going to be 0.6 or one times 60%. The term premium, the Vanguard Intermediate Treasury Fund has an exposure of about 0.4, and at 40%, you have then a loading on the term premium of 0.16. Now, if we take the DFA small value funds exposure to those factors, multiply that by the 40% Uh, allocation, we have exposure to market beta of only 0.45 versus 0.6 for Portfolio A. The size exposure in Portfolio A is zero. It's 0.4 
for portfolio B. The value exposure is zero in portfolio A. It's close to 0.3 in portfolio B. The quality exposure in A likewise is zero. It's about 0.1 in portfolio B. And the term premium exposure in portfolio A was 0.16. It's 50% higher at 0.24 for portfolio B. So in every case, we have more exposure to the other factors offsetting the lower exposure to the beta premium. And we see we get more of an equal weighting or a risk parity type portfolio. It's important to understand that the annualized return information I just went through is provided to show you the benefits of factor diversification and does not reflect the actual performance of any portfolio that we manage. And therefore, the return information is hypothetical as it doesn't reflect the results of any actual portfolio and doesn't reflect any advisory fees or trading costs incurred in the management of the portfolio. Some further observations. Portfolios can be constructed to add exposures to other unique sources of risk, such as the ones I mentioned, carry, momentum, variance risk premium, reinsurance, and others. By adding unique sources of risk and return that meet all the criteria, we can improve the efficiency of a portfolio, that free lunch called diversification. Adding those unique sources of risk can improve the expected risk-adjusted returns by reducing the tail risks of the traditional 60-40 portfolio. And because all investors are risk-averse, this is a worthy objective. It's also important to note that by improving the efficiency of a portfolio, and cutting the tail risk, you improve the odds of not running out of financial assets, the primary objective of most advisors. You see the benefits when running a Monte Carlo analysis. It's important to understand that in order to benefit from diversification, you must accept the fact that your portfolio will likely underperform when the main component, such as the S&P 500 index, of the less diversified portfolio is having a strong year or even decade. Because of the benefits it can provide, the concept of risk parity is an important one for investors to understand and should at least be considered as a starting point when designing a portfolio. However, it doesn't have to be the goal or final result. The reason is that investors may not have an equal degree of confidence in each of the unique sources of risk. For example, I have more confidence in factors that have risk-based explanations than ones that have behavioral-based explanations. That doesn't mean I don't include at least some exposure to behavioral-based factors. The evidence is strong enough to convince me that some exposure is warranted. However, because of the greater confidence I have in risk-based factors, I have higher allocations to them. As an example, I have more weight on the size and value factors than I do on momentum. But I do include some exposure to both cross-sectional, meaning relative momentum, and time series or absolute momentum. The bottom line is the goal should be to achieve broad diversification across unique sources of risk. That said, risk parity is not the only way to achieve that goal. 
Victor de Miguel, Lorenzo Garlapi, and Raman Uppel, authors of the study, Optimal versus Naive Diversification, How Inefficient is the One Over M Portfolio, which appeared in the May 2009 issue of the Review of Financial Studies, examined 14 different portfolio construction strategies, including mean variance and minimum variance, and found that naive one over N portfolios, with N being the number of unique sources of risk you have identified for investment, tend to be about as efficient as any other strategy. Thus, instead of trying to achieve risk parity, investors can simply build naive one over N portfolios that have equal allocations to many different unique sources of risk. While one over N might not be optimal, as you increase N, you increase diversification and move closer to the optimal portfolio. Recall that the traditional 60-40 portfolio, where N is just two, market beta and term, has almost 90% of its risk in a single factor. One over N also has the benefit of being simple. Like market cap weighting strategies, it requires no information whatsoever about the investments under consideration. For those interested in a full discussion of the alternative ways to optimize portfolio construction, I recommend the white paper, Portfolio Optimization, a General Framework for Portfolio Choice, as well as the follow-up paper, Revisiting the Portfolio Optimization Machine, by the team at Resolve Asset Management. The bottom line is that when designing a portfolio, the main objective should be to diversify across as many unique sources of risk as you can identify that meet all the criteria you have established. Whether you choose to accomplish that objective via a risk parity approach, a one over N approach, or some other approach isn't as important as simply achieving broad diversification and then staying the course remaining disciplined. There's one more important point we need to cover. While there are still important diversification benefits from adding international equities, as the world becomes more integrated and technology benefits spread quickly, correlations among equity asset classes are rising, reducing the benefits of global diversification. In addition, in crises, the correlation of all equity asset classes tends to rise toward one. The recognition of these two points increases the importance of adding other unique sources of risk and return in your portfolio in order to reduce the potential dispersion of returns and cut the tail risk. Summarizing, by diversifying across unique sources of risk factors and alternative investments, we can create more efficient portfolios. We can reduce portfolio volatility and narrow the potential dispersion of returns, dramatically reducing the tail risk inherent in traditional 60-40 portfolios. There's really nothing new here. Legendary hedge fund manager Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates has been using risk parity strategies for decades. The endowments of Harvard and Yale have been incorporating unique sources of risk in their portfolios for decades. 
Fortunately, today's individual investors now have access to such strategies without having to pay the traditional 2 and 20 fees of hedge funds, which leaves the fund sponsors with all the benefits. Nor do investors have to pay the high fees of active management. Many low-cost ETFs now provide access to the aforementioned factors, and the SEC's approval of interval funds has allowed such companies as Stone Ridge Asset Management to create funds that provide individual investors access to the variance risk premium in their fund AVRPX, marketplace lending in their fund LENDX, and reinsurance in their fund SRRIX. And in the interest of full disclosure, my firm, Buckingham Strategic Wealth, does recommend the funds of Stone Ridge Asset Management and Dimensional Fund Advisors in constructing client portfolios.